there's a, a phrase that Black women are these digital canaries in a coal mine for, for bad things online. And it's true, we absolutely are, but I don't want to, I mean, the canary in a coal mine dies. I don't want to have to experience something horrible for it to be seen as a, a, a real problem once it starts to impact people who don't look like me. Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today on the show, we have Bridget Todd, host of the award-winning podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Bridget's show is both a testament to the power of marginalized voices and a living, breathing chronicle of their experiences online. She's covered everything from sex trafficking myths that go viral to Kanye West's bizarre intimidation tactics toward a Georgia election worker in 2020. If you want to know what's going down on the internet, Bridget's show is the place to be. Join us as we cover the Manosphere's crypto connection, the racial politics of online harassment, and the endless search for a safe space online. And one more thing. This episode was recorded when Elon Musk was in the midst of his bid to buy Twitter. Since this recording, Elon Musk has withdrawn from this potential purchase, but our references to this event and what it could mean still stand. All of our hot takes and much, much more right after this quick break. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Bridget Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. We're really excited to have you. So how do you describe like the scope of your podcast to somebody when you first meet them? Because I mean, your show covers everything from sex trafficking myths that go viral to like why Twitter could, should, still maybe possibly can <laughs> listen to Black women. Like, why do you think you're so positioned to kind of tell these unique stories about what things are actually like on the internet? I just think it's because it's the truth. I think that I know that it is people who are traditionally and historically marginalized who make the internet what it is. Obviously, they make it, as I was explaining before, like safer and more inclusive, but they also just make it a more fun place to hang out, like a better place. You know, it is like, imagine what social media platforms would be like if not for Black creativity, Black spirit, Black jokes. It would be so <laughs> boring. Like, we make the internet what it is. And so yeah. I just sort of got sick of hearing all of these different tech stories and, and stories that were 
purporting to be about the internet that did not take that foundational truth into account, right? Mm. In my book, you can't tell a true story about technology or the internet without centering people who are traditionally marginalized because that's our domain. That's where we show up. We make that domain what it is. And so I wanted to create a platform where that truth could really be meaningfully centered, that the internet is what it is because of us and it always has been. And if you have not heard our stories, it is because they were either intentionally erased or downplayed. But that doesn't mean that we have not always been there. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the experience of Black women, Black people online, especially Black folks on social media. We can't really talk about that without talking about Twitter. And it's, I guess, as of now, as of the time we're recording this conversation, still in progress, sale to Elon Musk, literally like right before we hopped on this recording, the New York Times just broke the news that like two top Twitter leaders are leaving, as they put it, amid a shakeup after Elon Musk's deal to buy the company. Like it's turmoil over there. Okay. So I definitely didn't see that, but good to know. Yes. Some (laughs) context. So it seems like not everybody at Twitter is happy about that. But Twitter has been shaped and molded by Black influence from the beginning, as you said. How do you think that this sale could be shaping up to affect the platform? I'm so happy that you phrased it that way. I think that you're exactly right. Twitter would not be what it is without Black folks, Black Twitter, all of that. And I I should point out that Twitter and most social media platforms, I think they would range from outright hostility toward Black folks or like indifference towards Black folks, Mm. right? And so I think that Twitter is a platform where we have carved out spaces for ourselves and our voices and our power, despite the fact that these platforms have not always been so hospitable to us. And so that's sort of the legacy that we have always done on platforms like Twitter. Um, so I just want to ground it in that, in that idea. But I mm. also think that with someone like Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter, I think Twitter is saying they really don't see the value of us the people who make their platform what it is. They don't see our value. They don't see our labor. And I also think it it signals that they don't feel they need to be accountable to us, right? I think that Elon Musk has shown us in several different ways how he would moderate a platform like Twitter. He spent part of last week attacking high-ranking women of color leaders at Twitter. I don't know if she was one of the people who stepped down, but I wouldn't be surprised if she was. Mm. People whose job it is to make the platform a, a safer, more inclusive place, right? So when he spends a week publicly attacking their leadership, I think he's making it very clear what a Twitter would be like under his leadership. And so Twitter has always been a place where we have been able to claim power. Things like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, those were instances where we have been able to amass power and amass a voice and, you know, social and political capital Mm -hmm. when we have been so shut out of those things sometimes. And so I think that's why we're seeing Twitter as this battleground for the so-called sort of like identity wars, culture wars, because there are people for whom that is very threatening. People who traditionally have had power see us as marginalized people using these platforms to gain power and build our own platforms, I guess they find that very threatening. They want to take that power away from us that we have you know, worked so hard to build for ourselves. I'm glad you brought up that point about power because we've been using the term platform in two ways. Like on one way, we've been talking about like Twitter as a social media platform, but we've also talked about how Black people or so many marginalized people use social media to create our own platform where we can sort of form communities and make ourselves heard. Still, though, I think when it comes down to it, I mean, and it's been a long time since we had Black Planet, 
we're still kind of at this point where there aren't specifically like black owned or having a space that is curated and moderated and created by black people that are you know widely used the same way that Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or whatever Meta whatever it's called are what do you make of attempts by like other people to create alternative social networks that might be safer spaces for Black people. Like I think about Somewhere Good, which is like a new sort of audio platform by the creator of Ethel's Club. Ethel's Club was a workspace, like a co-working space meant to be like sort of a co-working networking space for Black people and, and, and people of color. But Naja Austin, a Black woman, started Ethel's Place. And, you know, she's the person behind Somewhere Good. That's this new audio ne- like audio social networking pro- platform. The stated goal is to create a space that functions in a more healthy way for people like us online. But is it actually possible for something like that to replace any of what people call the big four at this point? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, or Meta? I'm like, (laughs) I know Meta has reach, but ooh, child, is it cute? I still call it Facebook. His mama named him Facebook. I'm going to call him Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I... So I'm so excited for Somewhere Good. I cannot wait to play with the platform. I think what Naja's doing is brilliant and so cool. So I'm very, very excited. I think it's really powerful when we build our own platforms. And I want to like honor that because it's hard. And I think that we deserve platforms that meaningfully center us and give us the experience of being able to show up as our full selves. So that's one. But... I don't think that we should have to build our own spaces just to be able to show up safely and authentically Mm. and meaningfully online. You know, the ability to communicate and build community online is sacred. It's at the foundation of our democracy, of information. Everybody deserves to have access to online community and information, full Mm. stop. And so it's kind of like one of those things where when the conversation around things like Oscar So White was brewing, which also started on Twitter. Mm-hmm. People were like, oh, well, if like why don't if, if you don't like it, like, why don't you make your own Oscars? Why don't you make your own movies? And again, I think that people who make black-centered alternatives to things are great. However, you shouldn't have to have the access to capital, the the time, the vision, the dream to build your own platform just to show up safely online. Mm-hmm. Like Every, like, we deserve to be able to show up on the big four platforms safely and to access accurate information. And we shouldn't have to have all of the resources to build our own platforms just to be able to do, to, just to be able to do that. And so for me, it, just asking the question highlights the, the deep institutional failure of these platforms to, to moderate themselves and to be built in such a way that a large portion of the population cannot meaningfully and safely and authentically show up. And that is a real failure. And so, I don't know. I am really happy when anybody wants to build an alternative that where we can sort of be ourselves authentically. But we shouldn't have to. We should. We honestly should not have to. I feel the same way as you do. I'm. I'm excited at the prospect of what could be built. But I also feel like a little bit pragmatic about like sort of where we are right now. Part of my concern with where things could kind of go left, I think, with some of these new platforms that are just for Black people, is how they get shared and how they get spread around. Like, would it just be a bunch of professional Black people? (laughs) You know what I mean? Inviting each other to the same platform. Twitter's such a huge platform that, like, everybody knows about it and anybody can show up. What I like about 
the size and the vastness of the big social media platforms is just how many more people you can be introduced to, how many more people you can meet and talk to and and get into conversations with. So I think it's good to have those alternatives to like have a different kind of conversation or to, I don't know, maybe focus on a certain type of conversation that you want to have. I think that Somewhere Good is, is offering something different than something like Clubhouse, right? But I just think if there was like a Twitter, like a black Twitter that was separate. (laughs) I'm like, "Mm, like, uh, who's making it? And would everybody be invited? I think is kind of my question. The thing I love about social media and the internet is also the thing that I kind of don't love so much about it is that it's so accessible, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as you said, everybody pretty much knows about Twitter. If you wanted to sign up for Twitter, you could do it in an instant. Mm -hmm. If you have internet access and a phone and that accessibility of like anybody can really show up there is great because it means that you can build community and like listen in on conversations otherwise you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Yeah. But that same thing I think can make it so fraught. When everybody's invited, everybody's there. And so it's why I mean the conversation about things like harassment is a is a big one and an important one. But even things of like if I'm a black woman and you're a black woman and we maybe know each other, we both have natural hair, whatever we're tweeting back and forth, you know, I'm calling you sis, we're kikiing. Mm-hmm. And somebody who is not in that community can, you know, get, get in, in and, be, and, and get in on that, right? Like, how often does that happen? And so I think that I've seen more and more people turning toward, I guess, closed networks, you know, yeah. more sort of like your Patreon communities or your discords, where it's like an intentional, curated, small network of like-minded people bonding over one specific thing. I, I'm, I'm seeing more and more online spaces revert to, I guess you could call them almost like digital campfires. It's one of these things of like, you know, I, I think we have some real sort of philosophical and ethical questions to grapple with at the center of some of our tech platforms of like, what does it look like when scale and number of users is not the only thing that you're using to determine value, right? Because, mm. you know, like who mm. decided that bigger is better for platforms. I think on platforms (laughs) like Twitter, maybe it's not better, right? Because when you scale to a certain size, it's so much harder to have things like care and intention and empathy be the thing thing that centers the experience, right? If you're so much more likely to, to be treated like a quote user than a quote person when you scale. And so I think that it's a good question, but I think it really exposes some like deep, deep questions at the center of what it means to be a tech platform that I think that we really need to spend some time thinking about. The thoughts about harassment, online harassment, just dealing with all the unnecessary bullshit that comes with being a marginalized person online, a visibly or admittedly marginalized person online. I know there are so many marginalized people online who are getting like, constant death threats, docs, like having their personal information, contact info, their home address, those things leaked online. Just dealing with people calling them all sorts of slurs and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I feel fortunate in that I haven't had to deal with that too much. But thinking about harassment makes me think about like Taylor Lorenz. You know, the past two years, we've seen her a lot in the news talking about the harassment that, you know, women can experience online. For those who don't know, Taylor Lorenz is right now a Washington Post digital reporter. She reports on tech and social media. She's very into TikTok trends. I think that she has written some really interesting things. I appreciate how embracing she is of new platforms and and wanting to, you know, do reporting on them and whatnot. But like, you know, the past couple of years, I've seen her like crying and upset about all of this harassment that she's dealing with online. 
And while I think it's bad, I can't help but think about Black women because Taylor Renz is a white woman. I can't help but think of like people of color, marginalized people, queer folks, trans folks, period, activists that are frustrated that all of this attention has gone to Taylor Lorenz's like, you know, major, you know, upset, like all of her sort of public discourse about feeling vulnerable and feeling attacked online. When there are so many other marginalized people who have been banging, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, banging the, the gong on this for years. And, you know, it, it's just so obvious, like there's this white woman and she's got her cries for help. And though those cries for help are absolutely legitimate, like w- the stuff that happens to her online is disturbing. It's just garnering a lot more attention and a lot more action (laughs) than the cries for help that are coming from other marginalized people. Is there any way to change this dynamic so that people of color being harassed online can get that same level of care and attention that Taylor is getting right now? Yeah, oof. I mean, first of all, I just really respect how artfully you set the stage for the, for this for this part of the conversation because you have to walk a lot of tight ropes because you don't want to like minimize anybody's like very no, yeah. messed up situation but you also want to tell the truth about you know what you're seeing and so I, I appreciate the the care and intention with which you grounded <laughs> us in for me I think it's like a microchasm of what always happens in this country right where mm-hmm. it'll be an issue where black and brown folks, experience the worst of it, and yet we are not amplified as the face of it. And so the research is, there is an entire body of research about who experiences online harassment and things like doxing, violent threats, um, in real life, like things that start online and then turn to in real life violence. And the research is very clear. It is disproportionately Black women. So disproportionately, Hmm. Black women are the targets of online harassment and abuse, full stop. Yet the face of the conversation around online harassment and abuse is not Black women. I think it's because tale as old as time is what always happens in the United States, that issues that impact us disproportionately, we are not the the face of those issues. Um, And two, I think it really comes down to like, who is seen as like whose pain and whose trauma is seen as valid, whose pain and whose trauma deserves, quote unquote, empathy. I think that for Black women online, I, I mean, this is going to sound very negative, but it's just what I, what I believe. I think that a lot of people see us as deserving of mistreatment in many facets of society, but <laughs> online especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when a Black woman is talking about experiences that she's had online, I think there's always some nugget of like, what did she say? What did she do? How was she behaving? Was she like, what was she doing to invite this into her life? Those kinds of really unfair assumptions about how we as Black women show up, even online, will always follow us. And I think that that is why we're not meaningfully centered as the face of this issue that we disproportionately are impacted by. I think that people don't see us online worthy of things like empathy. Mm. I look at the way that we took that we're even right now, the conversation that we're having around Megan the Stallion. I think that like, yeah, I, like I watched this interview where she had to, where she had to really like bear her soul just for people to see her as someone who could experience pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what people expect of us online. I don't think that we have platforms that can be really grounded in seeing us as human. I think that we'll always be seen as less than or like 
people who like don't experience pain in some way when we show up online just by virtue of being black women. I 100% agree. The thing I keep thinking about is like, <sighs> Taylor has a lot of power right now. She's seen as the face of this conversation that maybe for some people on the internet feels very new or only very recently legitimized in their eyes. But like, I've been on social media for a long time. I've specifically been on Twitter, Black Twitter for a very long time. And a lot, like everything that Taylor's saying, Black women said like 15 years ago, basically. And so to me, it's like, you know, the the echo, the delay on the echo <laughs> coming from someone like her, it feels a little late. But there are also like white women who have been harassed online now that I think back on it. I think Lindy West was somebody who talked about that a lot in the past, like more eight to 10 years, five to 10 years ago. Um, there are also a lot of other like white women who've been harassed online who have not gotten the same level of attention as as Taylor, to be honest. But um, I would... I, part of me thinks like maybe one of the only practical steps is to have, is that like when white women like her do get attention, they divert resources back or they elevate, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, pass the mic and point attention toward, you know, the people who've been talking about this stuff for a really long time. I think that some of the frustration <laughs> that's being directed at her, I think is, is coming from people who are rightfully angry that they're not feeling like, She's not conducting herself like a, a person who's who's new to the space, um, mm. as opposed to being maybe like a leader in a conversation. But I think that's like a very common white lady thing that happens online. Um, oh, totally. That's like very much like this is affecting me now, and it's so it's new. Absolutely. I mean, hmm. until we meaningfully listen to Black women, we will live this out over and over and over again. There's a, a phrase that Black women are these digital canaries in a coal mine for for bad things online, and it's true. We absolutely are, but. I don't want to, I mean, the canary in a coal mine dies. I don't want to have to experience something horrible for it to be seen as a, a, a real problem once it starts to impact people who don't look like me. That is such a good point. That is such a good point. Like listening to Black women is something that like, you know, it's a, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. If you do what we ask you to do, it makes things materially better for everybody. Absolutely. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Cheers to a great day and this ice cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. I want to turn the conversation to TikTok a little bit because I love TikTok. I feel like TikTok became something that I was skeptical of. And then it was like, and then I felt like a little bit like a slightly early adopter for someone of my age. And now I'm super into it. And I feel like every time I talk to somebody who's like 26, they're like, mm, I'm not even on TikTok. I haven't been there in a year. It's terrible. I don't even go on there. And I'm like looking at it four times a day. But something our producer Alexis and I were talking about yesterday, we were prepping for this episode is that each of us has been getting. I thought it was just me because one of my best friends is a product manager. So she's a black woman in tech because she and I text a lot. Like, I think I get videos. I thought I was just getting, you know, black people in tech videos that were meant for her. But Alexis and I both are seeing these TikTok videos that are encouraging young black people, like Gen Z millennial black people, to go for these tech jobs at major companies. It's aggressive. And also both of us saw this video on YouTube by this creator, Amanda Mariana, you know, that was talking about sort of like what's up with this trend of Black people aggressively getting these videos from other young Black people being like, I work in tech and I work like three hours a day and I make $250,000 a year and I pay my mom's house off. And it's just like, and you can do it too if you work at, you know, whatever major tech company. Um, It's interesting though, because it feels like this sharp rise in these types of videos while we've also seen like quite a few major tech companies lay off workers in the last three to six months. What do you think is behind this drive to get Black people into tech jobs now of all times? Yeah, I so I have a thousand percent noticed the same thing, particularly on TikTok, also a few other places. But TikTok is like, I get so many of these, you know, what's here's my morning routine as somebody who works in tech or like, here's my day as somebody who works in tech. And the, 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 the cadence of these videos makes it seem as though getting a job in tech, every problem that you've ever had will go away. Yes. Your skin will clear up. Yes. You will finally figure out how to style your hair. Like that's the like vibe of these videos. And I don't know. I mean, they're selling this dream that I think doesn't really exist because I've worked for big tech companies before or a big tech company before. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a really positive experience there, but it wasn't all positive. It still was like, had its problems, had its ups and downs. And I think that we're in this, the midst of this moment where people are selling tech, to, particularly to young Black people, as this ticket to a certain kind of upward mobility and lifestyle. Yes. And I just think it's so dangerous, not because I don't think people should be working in tech, but because it's a fantasy. And I think especially now that people are talking about tech hiring as this bubble about to burst, where, you know, you can't hire like this and give these amazing perks especially if you're a company like a, like an Uber that has never made any money, right? Yeah. Like, and it, it seems like one of those things where everybody is kind of incentivized to be in on the scam. Not that I'm calling it a scam, but you know what I mean. I know like, what you mean. Everybody is incentivized to sell this fantasy. What's de-incentivized is telling the truth about what it actually looks like to be a Black person working in tech because it's not all sunshine and roses and blowouts and green juices for free at your cafeteria or whatever. 
<laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's not those things. I wonder if there's any connection between how aggressively cryptocurrency is peddled to Black people. I mean, lots of like financially vulnerable people, right? For some people, crypto has been a great opportunity. Usually those people tend to be a little bit more privileged and have a lot more financial institutional knowledge than your average person. Whereas there's a lot of people who have been financially underserved. And it feels like crypto is being aggressively pushed to Black folks. I could just say for my own social media experiences and experiences online as this fix all. Kind of like what you're talking about with the like sort of getting being a black person in, in tech. It almost feels like because investing in an unbacked, unregulated currency is potentially risky. It almost feels like you're you're trying to get a similar type of payoff in a way from getting this quote unquote legitimate job in tech. So it's like maybe maybe you don't have a bunch of money to invest in crypto to like make this profit, but you can game the system of getting a job at one of these tech companies the same way that you can game the sort of like financial system of cryptocurrency. Um, It's all a matter of just like learning the vocabulary, learning how to sort of play the game. But I mean, if you do get at one of these companies and let's say you stay for two years or four years, you could potentially get all of this money in stock options or you can get a retention bonus and you get a high salary and all of these other benefits. But you can still be in a really precarious position, you know, to your point, because not all these companies are profitable and, or you could be in a position where you work at a Twitter and then you have someone like Elon Musk come in and then it's like, what the hell do we do now? I I keep wondering like if there's some sort of connection between those two things. That That's such an astute point. I think there is definitely a connection. And to be honest, that was one of the things that inspired me to start my podcast mm. is that, I feel that for Black people specifically, when there is, for lack of a better word, content about our experiences with technology, Mm -hmm. they're always grounded in this kind of very capitalistic, very kind of like hustle-driven vibe. Like, the only way that a Black person would be interested in thinking or talking about technology is if you're talking about how to gamify a job at a tech company or if you're talking about how to gamify cryptocurrency. Like mm. It was specifically the cryptocurrency thing that really inspired me. And I think that we're sort of told that our interest and in technology should begin and end with like finding a way to put money in our pockets. And no, no shade to anybody who yeah. makes that kind of content or makes those kinds of podcasts. Like, do you, compl- like not, not trying to shame anybody for that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's indicative of the way that we are seen as having such a limited interest or limited understanding of technology that that is where our interest would begin and end with like making a bunch of money on cryptocurrency or, you know, being able to make a good salary working at Google or Amazon or whatever. And I guess I just felt like we also deserve to have, you know, thoughtful, heady conversations about the cultural implications of technology that we, that we are, that we shape so much or the legal implications that we are targeted by or the, you know, ethical or or democratic implications that, that certainly shape our lives. Like we deserve to be part of those conversations as well. And I just hate that it seems to be the facet of technology that is being heavily marketed toward us, Black people, is make a dollar on cryptocurrency, mm. get a good job at a tech company, because the implications for technology for us are far more 
nuanced and deep and implications could be more severe. Like technology is used to lock us up at, and criminalize us at vast disproportionate rates. So to, to have the conversation be about like things that feel kind of like almost like kind of scammy, I think is just really, I, I, I'm so, I, I see it too. And I'm so bothered by it. I want to stay on TikTok for a second more. TikTok made me much more aware of divine feminine slash manosphere stuff. You did an episode on your show on how men are being radicalized into sexist, racist, incel territory. But, the, you know, there's also a growing movement of women who are being sort of brought into our own vision of the manosphere called the divine feminine, as you mentioned, or femininity coaching, because femininity is its own whole thing. But like, there's all these little sort of subgenres. You can listen to our episode about it. <laughs> it's been surprising to me how difficult it is to separate the coaching and wellness space from more politically conservative and dangerous and sinister messaging. I mean, and I'm talking about, you know, Black people when I talk about, you know, the divine feminine or femininity coaching and the Black manosphere. But I mean, you see the exact same stuff going on with like the sort of yoga to QAnon pipeline. What do we do about the the misinformation that a lot of Black people are, are receiving from within our own communities that's kind of being mainlined to us through these social media. Yeah, this is something I've, I've dedicated a big part of my career and life to because it's something I'm very familiar with on a personal level, I guess I'll say. I have a lot of family and friends for whom this is their experience. And I think it always really comes back to the fact that we as Black people are so deeply, deeply underserved when it comes to thoughtful, truthful, accurate information that really centers and speaks to us. You know, we are so underserved by a lot of traditional media, a lot of other media sources. When they do serve us, it, see, it can be condescending, it can be isolating. Yeah. And I think that it creates these media gaps, these gaps where we're not getting the information or the content that really serves us. And when there are these gaps... There's always going to be a huckster or a liar mm. or a scammer or a bad actor who is glad to step in and fill those gaps with nonsense. And so it really is a story to me about what happens when we are not really meaningfully served because that I think that's where we're at right now. I think I think that black and brown folks have a lot of reasons to not trust traditional media sources and like, you know, media sources in general. And so when you think about who it is that you do trust, a lot of times it's your favorite YouTube person. It's your favorite TikTok person. It's your podcast person. These are people who have, you know, you might have an intimate relationship with because they're in your earbuds every single day. And so if that person tells you something that's a little bit like not on the level about gender or sexuality or vaccines, I think you're going to be much more willing to trust them and believe them because of that trust. And so I think that media is failing us by one, underserving us, and two, giving us reasons to not trust them. And I think that, again, there's always going to be somebody who is a huckster or a scammer or is trying to get rich uh, or make a dollar off of somebody who will gladly step in and fill those gaps that, 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 that are left in our communities. And so it's really a, it's really a problem. It's, it's, it's a deep problem. I think that when we talk about things like the manosphere and incels, the face of who we're talking about tends to be white, mm -hmm. but that ignores the reality that there is a growing Black manosphere, a growing Black incel movement mm -hmm. that we also need to be talking about. And I think for a long time, we just ignored these, these factions. We were just like, oh, well, you know, 
I'm just going to do my thing. I'm not going to talk about these mm-hmm. nonsense guys and what they're saying. And I think that's part of why we are in this situation now where a lot of these really damaging, harmful you know, concepts about gender and dating and sex yeah. have been sort of effectively mainstreamed. And I think it's because we don't have a lot of thoughtful content about dating and sex and gender yeah. for our communities. And so people who are just trying to make a buck off of that step in. And, and one other thing I wanted to say that mm-hmm. I, I really think is so interesting is that there's this podcast that I cannot stand. They are two Black men. They do like dating and like high- and fit. I am. I didn't know if I could say no, it, but yes, that's what I'm talking about. Fortunately, <laughs> we have like a very lovely community of listeners who are not offended by us okay, bringing good. them up ever, but yeah. So you're probably familiar with their content. Mm-hmm. It's very much like how to be a high value man. So just to recap, guys, number one, what is a high value man? A high value guy is a guy that, quite frankly, you go against the grain. You um, are established in some manner. You don't necessarily adhere to social constructs of political correctness of uh, earning money the typical way, not having a savings. Like, cause if you live- They do a lot of like disrespecting black women, um, which I cannot stand. Yeah. But I wrote a piece for The Nation about their podcast and specifically about how they are, in addition to the podcast, have this like high value man academy, which is a coaching course, an online coaching course where for the low, low price of, I think it was $700, oh they will teach you how to be a high value man, how to dress. And one of the things on the curriculum was also cryptocurrency. So I was just so interested that like of this scammy online coaching thing where you basically throw away money to be coached by them, one of the tenets of being a high value man was cryptocurrency trading. I just found that to be so puzzling. (laughs) (laughs) This is why, like, I'm so glad you brought that up. This is why we have to talk about this stuff. I mean, I am horrified, first of all, <laughs> horrified, but also like, I just am so riveted by how interconnected so many of these things are. Because the same way that there's like this fitness to QAnon pipeline or like dating advice to Manosphere, whatever, um, or even just like, actually for me, it was a more like health and wellness content to like divine feminine pipeline. There also is like, there are there are pipelines to crypto like there mm-hmm. are definitely like these you know 4 hour work week life hacking this is how you write the best email you know there's like a weird email marketing <laughs> to crypto pipeline um and it's just really wild to see the like the nexus of cryptocurrency and like high value man content it's, I feel like a, I just feel like such a sick person because I'm like, that's awful, but I'm really interesting. So, you know, Bridget, as the person who has helped us sort of like take note of the story behind the story when it comes to experiences of Black people on the internet, what's up next? Like, what do you see happening out there online that hasn't quite bubbled up to the timeline just yet? Like, what are the trends? What's going on? Oh, God, I might be too old to answer this question. Oh, Bridget, if you're too old, (laughs) I got one foot in the grave. Uh, I know I mentioned this earlier. I really think it's smaller, enclosed online communities, whether they're on Discord or Patreon or wherever. I think it's going to be the, the next big thing. The next big way that we show up online, I think, is going to be intentionally curated small online communities building community around one niche or one thing or one topic. I think it's a response to this crisis of 
things like moderation, where people just don't want to show up every day and, and, and log on to an online space that feels crummy, right? Like people yeah. don't want to log on to a space that feels draining or where you have to show up in, in just the right specific kind of curated way to avoid it being a negative experience. I think people are, are sick of that. And so I think that we're going to see a, a move from those kinds of experiences to experiences that are a little bit more closed where folks can show up a little bit more authentically, I think. Yeah, I also find myself posting less and less on Twitter. There's certain people that like, I love to sort of see what they're talking about or like if there's a TV show I'm really into or a movie I like, then I'll like look around to see like, oh, who's talking about it? What are they saying? And I still like to use Twitter for sort of getting news um, as like a news source. But I don't find myself wanting to really engage there. And Alexis and I were talking, we were sort of like, maybe it'll be something like, I don't know, Twitter has that new feature where you can sort of have your, I forget what it's called, communities or something like that. Some, like a social media platform that's a version, some version of that, where it's just like whoever you actually really want to communicate with. On one hand, I'm super into that, especially as somebody who creates work that lives online or whatever. But also... I wonder how much more isolated that can make people. Like my experience of the internet is so tailored to me and my tastes, but it also could make you feel less isolated in that if you have that focused community of people who have some sort of commonality, whether that's an interest or a shared identity or shared experience. Yeah. Um, that could also, you know, enrich your community building experiences. So I'm really, I, I agree with you. I'm actually glad to hear you say it because I'm like, okay, that makes it legit. Um, but Bridget, thank you so much for joining us today. This was <laughs> so much fun. I love talking about the internet stuff. Your show has definitely helped me to clarify some of my own thoughts about how things are going on the internet. And also like, you know, that like I'm somebody who's actually deeply concerned about these things and cares about like, I guess the health and the functioning of the internet too. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and, and for the work that you do. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so fun. This is the highlight of my week. You have no idea. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too. We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode. And it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your, do your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 